Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. I'm your host, Luke Kelly, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Today, it's just Matt and I, and today we're chatting about student agency and micro-credentials, something that we're both pretty passionate about. So without further ado, let's get to it. Student agency, Matt. Uh, I I read an interesting post that you made on LinkedIn uh, during the week around uh, student agency. So uh, tell me what you're thinking about student agency. I think it's an interesting topic, and what I've referred to in the post is that you know, in schools, we're talking a lot about it, but perhaps our systems aren't set up for it. And I think simply for our listeners, student agencies, that notion of personalised learning, um, it's a bit of an edgy speak word. But to, to break it down, I guess, into to three concepts, for me, it's about teachers shaping authentic and meaningful um, experiences in the classroom. And really, that's about engaging students, you know, igniting their passions and interests. And I haven't met an educator that doesn't want to do that for their students. The second point I would make is it's about providing a level of voice uh, and choice to learners um, in the decisions uh, around their learning, um, you know, and it doesn't mean that we need to give, you know, students free reign of the classroom, but we want them to, t- to take on a certain level of ownership. And the third point I would make is, is giving students permission with really good teacher guidance to actually shape their learning path to have some level of ownership and independence. Um, I don't, I'm not talking about sort of free-reign children or free-reign classrooms, but really for me, those three things, authentic, meaningful experiences, a level of voice and choice, and a level of ownership around their learning path. Yeah, it's interesting. When I think about it, I, I, and that use of the word student agency, I really, for me, it comes to that, the voice and choice of a, of a, of a student in deciding... Um, you know, the type of learning, the content of the learning, um, where their kind of passions might lie. And I think that the challenge uh, for us in K-12 schools in creating that student agency is around, we have to follow curriculum. You know, we're kind of boxed in by what, you know, the government tells us we have to teach. And, you know, how does that evolve you know, that might be fine for a year three, four student who doesn't necessarily know what they want to learn. But by the time they're getting to 10, 11 and 12, you know, they're starting to follow a pathway. You know, they might have a range of interests. They're finding that they're good at things. How do we foster enough student agency in a, in a K-12 setting? But particularly, I think when we're talking about agency right now, it's probably skewed a little t- more towards senior school. How do we allow that to happen within the constraints of a curriculum that's set or, you know, requirements for waste which are set, which say you have to take this type of subject and this type of subject and complete this many units that have to have this much content in them. Creating that student agency in the framework of that is quite challenging. I think in terms of of challenge, you know, I'd be one to say that there are non-negotiables you know, there's a pragmatic reality about the curriculum that you've described, the, the syllabus and the, and the expectations. So we know that there are non-negotiables in our current system. I guess my view is that it's incumbent of educators and leaders to create what I'm, I might call ecosystems in their, in their schools to, to kind of partner those ideas, those things that are non-negotiable, but those moments in time where you can create systems to promote student agency. 
Uh, I guess for, uh, to give it an example, and I'm actually, you know, I'll use just a sort of an early years example. We know that literacy and numeracy are the basics to all learning. So we know that we need to invest. We need to invest in early intervention. They are non-negotiable. But coupled with that is that sense of inquiry models, you know, and, and Australia's led the charge in, in many ways in terms of inquiry. Students inquiring, and, and yes, there's a shape of knowledge, but to develop their understandings, to, to apply their skills and the like. And it's my view that those things can coexist, those non-negotiables, but those moments of time where we can give agency to students. Um, and so for me, it's about thinking of ecosystems rather than the system. Um, and I think that's you know, also relevant in our senior school context. I guess to provide another example is the movement around transferable and enterprising skills in, in schools. We all know critical thinking and creativity and collaboration and communication are essential for all learners um, now at school and beyond. And so, you know, a curriculum is not going to give that to you. It's teachers are going to need to shape those things, but they can only shape them when knowledge and content exists. They don't happen in isolation. So again, that notion of coexisting, we need knowledge and curriculum for those things to be harnessed and developed. So I talk about ecosystems very deliberately because I'm not, um, you know, I'm not pie in the sky when it comes to this idea of student agency. Uh, there are non-negotiables. Get back to that point there around inquiry and kind of, I guess, get your views on, you know, like, what do you think is really happening you know, as a percentage-wise of all primary school classrooms, how much inquiry is probably ha happening out there? Do you think it's, you know, now commonplace? I certainly think in terms of the way we think about project-based learning, um, the way we think about inquiry models and the like, I think we'd be surprised. There's actually a lot going on in schools and there's a level of uh, greater flexibility when it comes to the curriculum to do that. And certainly our Australian curriculum and the like have built-in opportunities, um, you know, as we think about capabilities, general capabilities, cross-curricular perspectives and the like. So I actually think there's more going on than we perhaps know um, and perhaps more going on than we, we kind of can identify and articulate. As we move up into schools, though, as we move, you know, higher up in the senior schools, the curriculum actually narrows. The expectations are more and it's almost like there are, you know, there are absolutely more and more non-negotiables in many ways. But I think our first thought is that it's easier at a, at a senior school level, whereas actually I think it's, it's much harder. And I think it's also much harder because in primary schools, you have, you know, that one teacher who's the one-stop shop, you know, and they're teaching maths and English and science and technologies and arts and the like, and it's integrated. And they can intertwine it themselves. That's right. And so, in, in, you know, you put this on the other, other foot, Teachers have a lot more agency <laughs> in sort of shaping and meeting the needs of their learners. Um, and being a primary sort of school teacher in my early career, um, you know, I, I guess I've experienced that, but also being a, a senior school teacher uh, in my past as well, I know some of those constraints um, and perhaps the, those opportunities aren't necessarily there. So going back to the, the first point around student agency, um, I guess your LinkedIn post was kind of asking for examples, we were talking about some of the things that happen in the school that we work in. Um, what are some of the best examples you've seen of, of schools giving away kind of some student agency or, or things over to, over to students? I know there's Future Schools Alliance, which is really heavily kind of into this space around you know, having students involved in X, Y, Z across the school. Um, what are some of the things that you kind of 
have seen working well in this space? Um, I guess from a, a junior school perspective, um, I have seen some amazing inquiry pieces. And, you know, I guess something that I've seen a lot is, is how we, we surface, um, you know, that, that cultural um, element and, and development and awareness and how that might be integrated, you know, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, knowledge and understanding, but truth telling. Um, and seeing that embedded, so not a lip service, but actually something that's, you know, where we have, um, you know, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people walking alongside our students and walking alongside our teachers. Uh, and I think for me, that's a great example of not only developing knowledge, but then saying, actually, there's something here for you. Um, and it might be, you know, a level of expression um, in, you know, developing a piece of art, or it might be putting together a dance or something. But there's, a, there's an experience that is meaningful, that's authentic, that gives students an opportunity to engage at their level. So I think that would be one thing. The, the second example, which was sort of shared with the post um, by, by a colleague, um, was that wonderful idea that students are at the table. And I've often said, you know, if you're not at the table in decision-making, you're on the menu. People are talking about you. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think it's really interesting, this example, um, you know, in a school um, up north in, in Queensland where... Um, students are actually at the decision-making table when it comes to curriculum and pastoral care. Their voice is actually part of that, and they sit alongside their teachers um, in those, those upper years. That's hugely powerful. Um, and we often say that student voice and lens um, is just often unique and, and quite profound. You know, at teacher level, we're very good at sort of, you know, reflecting on ourselves um, but actually, sometimes the students are the ones that we actually really need to hear from. I guess the third uh, and final example of, of some of the better practice in terms of student agency is the, the, the kind of new development in K-12 schools looking at micro-credentials, where we are talking about depth and breadth of experience, we're talking about authentic learning, um, but giving students an opportunity to find their passion, um, to, to have a go at different experiences um, to, to shape what might happen once they leave the school gates. I guess, nice segue there into micro-credentials. Um, I guess that's something that we've both been working on over the last kind of year, um, and we've launched a new program here at our school. Um, you know, do you want to take us through a little bit around you, you know, your thoughts on micro-credentials and providing a, a breadth of kind of opportunities for kids that sit outside? I think that you know, as we've gone through this process, I, I tend to feel like I've come to this realisation that we teach, you know, a lot of kids in on, on an ATAR pathway, lots of maths and physics and chem and English and bio and languages and politics and law, but not many of those uh, subjects are similar to what they're going to study beyond the school gate. Yes, if you do engineering, you might do high-level maths and some physics in you know, different kind of subjects. But the subjects that we're teaching in 10, 11, 12 don't carry on beyond the school gates. And I think there's, you know, I think that the micro-credential program we've kind of created allows for students to have some tasters about subjects that kind of carry on and skills that carry on beyond the school gates. Whereas maybe we haven't quite got that right in year 10, 11, 12. I think it's interesting to kind of come back and think about, well, why would you do that kind of micro-credentialing, you kind of, you've kind of explained that, that sense of relevance of what we do in schools versus what we'll do outside schools. 
And when I think about the current system, um, and I've, I've sort of said this publicly, we have a very binary system, particularly to year 11 and 12. You're either doing an ATAR pathway because you're going to university, or you're going to do a general or a VET pathway because you might be going to TAFE or industry. And this idea that there's two pathways to life is one of the most ridiculous propositions. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I agree, but I think the challenge is that the options after school are binary as well. You know, like you have the option of university. Yeah, you've got 500 universities you can choose from. You've got TAFE and that sector and you've got that to choose from or you've got part-time job or, or, or job to choose from. It's not like there's a range of choices necessarily that's not binary. And I think that's challenging because we set up that system for binary, then of course the leading to that is going to be binary. But I think what we're starting to say is why not? have a bit of everything, yeah. if that's what you want. Well, I think your, your, your end goal here is to say, well, you know, students are going to have up to sort of 17 jobs in their lifetime. They're going to be in seven different careers that require different skills. Yes, there'll be transferable ones, but there'll be seven very different contexts to that experience. And so, yes, we might be binary in our sort of, kind of context of, oh, well, I'm going to go to university and I'm going to be trained at this. But the percentage of students that actually finish a university degree and actually work in that field is actually smaller than you think. Um, likewise, the pathway to university um, of, of students going to that first year, you know, there's a lot of them that aren't going on an ATAR pathway. So I guess I'm saying, you know, it's not as linear as you think. Mm. Um, and actually, it's, there's a far greater breadth um, and depth of experience that happens once you leave school. And perhaps we're not setting up kids well for that. Um, I think the, there's another bit here around enterprising skills. And, you know, recently we surveyed our whole community, our parents, our staff and our students, and there was a constant theme. And that was, we want you to develop more life skills for our students because, you know, we don't think they're prepared for a future that is uncertain. Um, so could you please spend some time on that? And my, my answer is, well, there's a whole lot of non-negotiables. How do you do that? Well, this goes back to an original point I made. It's incumbent of schools to think about ecosystems rather than the system. And so I think what we've done with micro-credentialing is not fight those non-negotiables. We're not fighting a traditional curriculum. We're putting that to one side and saying, well, that's a system, that's fine. But actually we're creating another system that sits and coexists with that. Um, and I think that's really important as we think about how we create those types of programs in our schools. And I think... You know, from my point of view, I think the reason we've been able to do that, and it seems to be successful so far, it's early days, but it's because we've carved out time within the school day for that program. So we've carved out time for, you know, the traditional subjects. That's, that's the non-negotiable part of the, of the system. Mm -hmm. But now we have a separate part, which is not extra. You know, and I think it's when these things are extra you know, sit in the morning at seven o'clock in the morning or at three thirty or five, that they get lost, mm -hmm. you know, amongst sport and arts and, you know, the myriad of co-curricular activities that we have mm -hmm. as an option. But what we're saying is if we feel that these skills and these micro-credentials are so important and that we want kids to have this breadth of experience, it's got to have some, a place within the school day. Yeah. 
and that and that's where I took that's where and that's a risk. Yeah, it's a risk, and that's where I think I said back in the post that we have to be courageous. Um, you know, we have to think creatively about how you deliver something like this. And my best, you know, advice is to think about your current system in your school and think about well, what is it an ecosystem of different kind of streams. Of, of curriculum, you know, traditional things. Where does your co-curricular sit? Where does your pastoral program sit? And where does micro-credential in particular fit? You know, yes, we have a, cr- a crowded curriculum, but you know what? I think we can think smarter. Um, and I think if we think about in that, that systems mode, I think there are solutions to be had. Yeah, and I think that the way we were able to implement it was that, you know, we found, you know, again, surveying your students and your, and your staff around what's happening at certain parts of a school week. And, you know, from our point of view, there was a lot of feedback around what happens on a Friday afternoon. And if you've got a line that lands on a Friday afternoon in year 11 and 12, how productive is that? Um, You know, you could pretty much put an argument both ways on that. But if we kind of give something away to say, well, if that's not the most productive time for doing that aspect of the system, what else could you use in, in place that's actually going to be valuable? And the, and the barometer for that, that idea for me is impact. You know, what value and impact are we having on a Friday afternoon, six period, for instance? Um, and that's where I think te- the educators need to just step back and go, well, what are we actually providing our students that's of value and what kind of impact are we having? And could we be reimagining that to increase that level of value and impact? Yeah, and I think one thing I want to go back to is the life skills aspect of what we're talking about here. I think that, you know, it's incumbent on us to kind of create a better pathway for life skills. And that's, you know, it might be financial literacy. You know, it might be, you know, making a coffee as a barista. It might be understanding difficult agreements, like understanding a car loan, understanding your, your first mobile phone contract and what that means, understanding credit card rules. They're important life skills. And I think that there's not one person I've talked to when we've talked about this program that hasn't gone, why is it that schools aren't teaching this? Because we're so caught up in mathematics and physics and, you know, I'm using the same subjects, but whatever they happen to be in year 11 and 12, those pathways, that we just have lost sight of some of those skills and, you know, the knowledge that an 18-year-old needs coming out of school. And I think that, one of the things I love about this program is that we can teach those things mm. and they have a choice about whether they want to learn about it. Mm. So, I, yeah. I think what's interesting about that, I, I ran a tour yesterday um, with, with, you know, 20 prospective parents to, to our school and we were sort of explaining this sort of credential program and one of those prospective parents said, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we need to be doing. Another parent group got on board and said, this is exactly what should be happening in schools. And one of the, one of the, what well, the parents sort of described, um, you know, having a friend with, with a student um, who was with a child that was absolutely the smartest, you know, ducks of school, absolutely, you know, kicking it out of the park, left school and couldn't fill in a form. Left school and couldn't manage anything to do with, you know, cooking, you know, couldn't iron a shirt, couldn't, um, you know, work out how to do a phone plan or anything like that. And the parents' point was this. You could be the smartest kid in, in, in the school. You can do really well at maths, physics, etc. But, man, if you can't fill out a form, you're going to fall on your face. So how are uh, teachers, how is the system preparing our students? And that's just one tiny example um, that happened yesterday um, that I think is really, really interesting. And um, 
well, I also had a student with me and that particular student's actually doing a micro-credential at the moment. And I actually just passed to him. And I said, well, do you want to talk to these parents? And again, it's about voice. It's about agency. And he described one of the courses that, that he's going through, which is tough life decisions, um, you know, and tricky um, agreements, which is around contracts. It's about tenancy agreements. How do I fill that out? Um, how do I, what are the top tips for understanding um, you know, what, what I can and can't do. Uh, if I've got roommates, how should I protect myself um, in, in case they sort of disappear and I don't have income? Uh, we looked at car loans because they all wanted to buy a car but just didn't understand, well, what's the real cost of a car over its lifetime? Um, anyway, he explained this um, to, to all, the, all, this, all these, these parents and I thought, there it is right there. This boy has worked out that this stuff's important. There's an application here. Um, and I, I kind of want to also come back to, to your point um, around agency, because in this moment, we're not teachers, we're facilitators. And as a facilitator, it's actually up to the student to engage and be motivated, to be um, self-directed, to be independent. They're either going to buy in or they're not. And a teacher's response usually is we'll conjole them and we'll corral them and you know, we'll say you've got to show more effort and you need to try harder. But in our program that we've created, we've had to let go. We've had to be facilitators and say, you know what? This is about you finding your passion. This is about your interests. It's about you getting prepared for life. We'll shape and guide you because that's what good practice is. But you know what? You own it. And I think that's why it's such a great example of student agency. Well, I think the thing that adds to that is that we have 20-odd credentials on offer and they're self-selecting in. So we're kind of hoping that by self-selecting in, that they're buying in and therefore they are, they are passionate about learning. And I think for the most part, the feedback I'm getting from facilitators is that actually that the kids are really engaged in this process much more than they might be normally in a classroom. And the flip side to that is, would we be worried if they weren't engaged? Are we worried if they work out that that's not something that's of interest? And I think that's okay. I think and it I, is. And I think that it's a struggle for us to realise that because as an adult, we've all been in those courses where you're halfway through a day and you're like, this is boring as batshit. Yeah. Like, what am yeah. I doing what here? What am I doing here? What am I doing here? And I remember uh, a mentor of mine at one point was like, if you're ever in that situation, get up and leave. Walk out. Don't waste your time yeah. if you're sitting there knowing that you're not getting anything out of this. But yet for kids... When they're in a school context, that's not okay. No, no, you sit in that chair and we're going to do, you know, You're education this, at you. Whether you like it or we're not. We're going to do learning to you yeah. uh, rather than let you do the learning. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, it's probably a really good time now too to kind of identify some of the credentials. I mean, you've started surfacing some of the ones that we've, we've put in place, but, uh, you know, we've got a suite of sort of 20 or 21 courses. What, what courses are we running? So I guess we've got a range. Uh, we've got introduction to construction, so bricklaying um, and, and concrete, uh, right through to barista, how to cook when you leave home, which is important in an all-boys context because we don't have you know, those, that sort of subject here at the school. Um, we've got adulting, which is around superannuation and tax. We've got the tricky agreements. Uh, we've got one called planning a gap year, which I think is a really interesting place for a school to be at, um, personal branding, uh, sports coaching basics. Again, we have a lot of kids come back, but you know, they, they come as a, a kid three months, six months out of school. Have they ever coached anyone? 
yet we put them straight into coach a year seven and eight B, C, D team without any real coaching development. So I think that's been an interesting one. Um, bronze medallion, we've got one on the business of mining. And I know I've kind of, I guess, said this publicly as yeah, well. Yeah. But, you know, it just seems crazy to me when we were kind of creating this program that here in WA, we know that 60% of our economy is powered by mining. But how much mining do we talk about in our school curriculum? Zilch. Very, very little. <laughs> you know, like we might learn some basics of it in year, kind of year, year seven, eight science, maybe. Um, but it's really not something that we do. And in what world would you live where 60% of your jobs may be connected to a, a sector and yet we don't teach kids anything about it? It just seems astounding when you think about it like that. Absolutely. And I guess also emerging technologies. AI, machine learning, data science, cybersecurity, you know, some really interesting kind of things for kids to kind of get after and learn about, okay, what are these careers like? You know, eventually we'll move into some of the more standard ones like, you know, law and commerce and introductions into those fields so that kids get a sense of, okay, if I was to follow a career in this area, what might that look like? Because I think so often kids come out of school, no idea what they want to do. Oh, I'm good at maths and science. I'll do engineering or, you know, I'll be a doctor. So, but they have no idea what it's really about. And so I think, I think there's a, there's an onus on us to spend more time going wider with giving skills, skills and knowledge around future careers than we currently do. The, the odd careers, you know, carousel or careers night where you, you have, you know, a bunch of universities come in or it, it doesn't really cut the mustard for me in terms of, okay, well, I'm going to go one night and read this book and fill in this kind of skills matrix and it's going to tell me what job I should be thinking about. So it's about authentic kind of pre-career, pre-tertiary experiences. Absolutely. I want to come back to one of your points there around that, again, the agency, but I was talking to a couple of kids uh, in podcasting, in the podcasting micro-credential. And in this credential, we're kind of teaching them how to build an entire podcast. So right from, uh, you know, logos through to how to record using the right gear, through to uploading, how to create your audience, what a flow of an episode should look like, something that's something probably you and I could probably learn from. Yes, I need, I need some help. <laughs> but um, what I found really interesting is that some kids instinctively got it and they just got on with it and they, they're, they're kicking it out of the park. You know, they've got their episodes, they know who they want to talk to, they know the kind of content they want to cover. And some kids are like, I've got no idea what I actually want to, mm. what I want to talk about. Like, there's no, fra- there's no actual framework for you telling me that this is what the podcast has to be about. And I think some kids struggle with that. And schools sometimes beat that into kids. Okay, class, we're going to do a podcast and it's going to be about X. It's going to be about you know, medieval times and it's going to be three minutes long and it's going to be here and you're going to upload it there. Mm. Whereas this is saying that you've got free reign here. You, you create a podcast of whatever you like, however long the episodes are, whatever style you want. And again, I think that's challenging for kids to transition out of being told what to do. I think it's a middle piece. And I think this is a, that's a really interesting concept of why perhaps micro-credentials have not taken off in K-12 schools. 
we know that in the university sector, micro-credentials have sort of taken off and it's sort of choose your own adventure and there's pre-preparation and, and the like and there are stackable credentials. So if you find your passion, okay, what's next for you? What's next for you? What's next for you? But the challenge in K-12 schools when it comes to micro-credentials is we still need a level of teacher guidance. But <laughs> it's not the same kind of teaching and, and control and guidance that you've just sort of described. And that is the challenge. We're trying to facilitate. We're facilitating. We're yeah. not teaching. And in a K to twelve school, there still needs to be that level of scaffold. There still needs to be that level of guidance. But you know, going back to my post, it's about hey, we need to actually let go. You know, because perhaps you know next year when you go out to the workplace or you go out, you know, into a tertiary, you know, education, you're not going to be served this all up on a platter. And so, what we're trying to do in that micro credential space is is kind of be that bridge. You know, we, we still need that level uh, of guidance, but we also need to pull back and say, you know what, this is over to you. It's now time for you to start doing the thinking. And I think that's really interesting. We're seeing micro-credentials sort of pop up across the country and certainly Victoria, we're starting to see some of that. This is the great tension for us is how much do we control? How much do we let go? And if that student has no idea what to do, well, what's my response as a facilitator rather than the rescuer that's really the teacher in me. Yeah, and I think just one thing I want to kind of go on from there is around how challenging it has been to set this up. And even as we're into it now, why it's so challenging. And I think, you know, we talked, you mentioned before about kind of new age technology skills like AI, machine learning, you know, data science, cybersecurity. How many teachers mm. do we have that have the skills to facilitate that? We talk about bricklaying and concrete. How many teachers do we have that have those skills? You know, not a whole lot. Podcasting, another one. Do we have teachers that have those skills? They're not core skills that teachers learned, you know, in terms of, you know, the eight learning areas when whilst at university majoring in an area. Those sorts of things weren't always there because they're new. Mm. So it's actually challenging to find the right people because we don't have necessarily teachers that have experience we may have teachers that are passionate about something and can therefore jump on the bandwagon but may not have the depth and breadth of experience and skills and knowledge in these areas and i think that's one challenge the other thing is it's expensive you know in terms of the resources required to actually run these programs like you know we went out and bought three cafe quality coffee machines expensive running beans and milk each week it's expensive for the kids to learn on that where does most of that coffee go you know, it's not going to, you know, start at this point. Yeah. It's maybe not that drinkable at this point, but we're going to get to that point. <laughs> I, I can't wait till it's drinkable. But it's expensive and it's a very different kind of kettle of fish to just standing on a, in front of a class on a computer or a whiteboard, you know, delivering content via, you know, LMS or via a textbook. And so I think there's a, you know, a tension here as well if we want to be playing this space and do it well, it's actually expensive and hard. It is hard, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, the, the number of teachers that have specific skills in these things is actually quite small. Um, and then, then the kind of the cohort gets bigger when you think about teachers' own passions and interests. So, okay, maybe you've got sort of 50% of your teachers involved, at, you know, at, at the most, but actually you're bringing in external expertise, you know, and that's really a lot of your cost as well. Yeah, you've talked about the startup of our coffee machines, but you are having to buy people in. And we don't have barista experience staff here. 
<laughs> no. Um, and, and then I think what you're really saying is there's also a scalability piece here. You know that I know I can put a teacher in front of a classroom with 25 kids and I know how much that's going to cost me, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a school leader. I, I, I know that inside out. But if I've got someone, I've got coffee machines and I'm bringing someone in to do that and it's actually probably limited to 16, 18 students, you know what? There's, there's, there's a fine line economically mm-hmm. going, is this actually viable? Is this scalable? And so I think for, for schools in navigating this kind of setup, it's about saying, okay, we want something that's fit, fit for purpose, something that fits us. You know, how much are we willing to invest? How much do we really think this is worth it? Um, and it might be, you know, we're only running six courses. You know, we've been really ambitious. We wanted to have depth and breadth. We've gone 20 courses and, and as you described, it is hard. Um, but it's sort of a year or two down the track when you go, well, have we had the right impact? Are we doing the right stuff um, that will truly know its value? And so you're managing that kind of financial risk with your strategic risk and saying, well, this is our point of difference as a school. This is really important to us. But there's a financial cost. And how do you kind of reconcile that? And I think that's what you're sort of describing. I don't have any any easy answers, but it kind of sits there as something that schools are really going to have to think about. Leaders are going to have to really think about if they want to implement these types of micro-credentials. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to have to grapple with that. I think uh, just going back to teachers, I think the other thing that's been a shift here um, in our context has been we had a number of teachers early on who actually really were passionate about a course that they wanted to see run. And it's kind of been, again, a challenge to kind of go, that's great that you see the value in it and that you want to run it and you're passionate about it. And I'm happy to put that up as an option, but if no students choose it, we're not putting it on. Mm. And I think that's also been a little shift, you know, around student agency and around, you know, us actually saying, we're not putting on, um, you know, Again, the normal suite of academic classes because that's what we all think the kids should learn. We're actually turning this over and turning turning it around to go. If we, you know, you may want to run X, Y, Z, but if the, and, and it might be a great course, but if the students don't see any value in it and they're not going to select it as a preference, it's not going to run. Sorry, and a few people have probably had their no, their noses put out of joint because we've turned around and gone. Actually, only three kids actually yeah. put their, that down as a preference. And they, they struggle, you know, students, student voice here. Like if we're genuine about student agency, they should have some voice in the decisions that impact them, full stop. Um, and, you know, teachers are good at go, well, this is what you need as students and these are the life skills you need. And, you know, we, we brought together what, 25 experts uh, or 30 experts uh, and, and teachers and parents to kind of craft, well, what are the micro-credentials we should be spending time on? How many, we came up with over 60. Yep. But we took that back to the kids and said, well, if you were to choose your top 20 out of that 60, what would you choose? And that's where that kind of tension came because, as you said, there was there was a whole bunch of credentials that the kids said, you know what, nah. Um, and that was, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of the ones that the sort of teachers were saying, well, this is really important. Yeah. Um, and that was really hard to swallow, as you sort of described. Um, but if we are true to meaningful and authentic experiences, if we are true to voice and choice, and if we are true to students shaping their own learning paths, these are the types of decisions that we need to give away. And man, it's hard, but I just think it's so important. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's going to be hard, and when we're about to embark on this process here, is around the awarding of a micro-credential. And I guess from our point of view, we've come to a conclusion that uh, we're going to have a standard 
uh, a standard way of, of awarding these, and that's around attendance yeah. uh, plus 80%. So they've got to be there more than 80%. They've got to complete a reflection task with the same four or five questions across any of the credentials and a completion task. So we're going away from this, this notion of assessment uh, and a graded assessment to going, okay, if you've met you know, a satisfactory standard across attendance, a reflection task and a completion task, then we're going to award that criteria, I mean, award that micro-credential. Yeah. I think that's going to be a challenge. And I think that there's going to be, and we're going to report that, you know, through a standard, you know, semester report, whatever, through our LMS. I think there's going to be some uh, facilitators who struggle with that notion of being okay with some kids not getting a credential. Again, real life, that's what happens. You don't, you know, meet certain criteria at university, then you don't get, Mm. you know, don't get awarded something or if you don't, whatever it happens to be. But I think some parents are going to struggle with that too. I I think... That notion of seeing something there being not awarded and not being able to redo it again. Yep. And I think it will be jarring and that's where our narrative and our messaging is just so important to both of those stakeholder groups, but including the students. It's like receiving an E-grade on your report and it's like this massive surprise to a parent or a family. And, and um, you know, we're all concerned. Um, and so when we see that transcript and it says micro-credential barista course not awarded, that's like receiving an E-grade. Um, how are we coping with that? Um, are we okay with that? And I think if we're true to what we're trying to achieve, if we're true to student agency, we actually have to say it. We have to say, you know what? You weren't good enough, not awarded. That's going to take um, some convincing because our system is all about making sure students achieve success. Yeah. Uh, and philosophically, that's, it's, a, it's a really interesting notion and, um, and one that we are, we are kind of grappling with right now. But it's interesting because that stops. The moment they walk out that gate in year 12, that's not in any other part of their life, mm. you know, in terms of trying to ensure success. And I know that we want every kid to be successful in their own right, and we should want that. Yeah. But that stops at the school gate mm. when they turn 18 or whatever mm. it is and leave at the end of year 12. TAFE, university, any other education they're ever going to yep. do, there's very little care factor of whether you pass or fail something. Mm or get awarded something or not. I can't think of any form of professional learning that I've ever done where the facilitator or the course director or anyone like that has been concerned about me passing or not passing. Hmm. It's on you. Or attending or not attending. It's on you. And I think that's what we're trying to achieve here is that bridge. We're setting them up to say, actually, you know what? It is on you. And if you choose not to engage, if you choose not to apply yourself, if you choose to show li- very little engagement with, with your colleagues as you're doing that, well, it's probably not going to be awarded. That's on you. Yeah, and that links perfectly back to student agency. Yeah. You know, in terms of it's on you and, and we don't often do that. You know, we kind of do with, you know, if you don't pass an assessment in, it's on you to kind of get it in. I think, you know, in schools like ours, sometimes there's a tendency, like you described, for a teacher to say, I want to see them succeed, you know, come on, get it in, you know, even if you get it late, like it's better than not getting in at all. Whereas this is a, it's a a monumental shift in terms of that student agency piece about that buy-in. We're hoping that they do buy-in because they're self-selecting in, but occasionally you're going to have those that don't. Yeah. And we have to be okay with it. Mm. 
And I think that's a challenge. That's a huge challenge and and something that um, we are going to have to traverse over these next uh, weeks and months ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, we've talked there a lot about how difficult it is to scale micro-credentials because of the challenges. What do you see as the enablers of scaling of micro-credentials so that it's kind of can go beyond, you know, the, the potential of two hours a week on a Friday afternoon to being something more broadly accepted in schools? I think over the next five to ten years we'll start to see a shift. You know, our education systems are very slow to move. But I think we are starting to see a shift and that idea that, you know what, students will move between sort of academic and enterprising experiences um, and the curriculum will create, you know, there'll be a little level of fluidity about that. So I can see a time where there will be more choice for students that we will be less sort of grounded. That's a way off. Um, and I think it's not until that, the, the time where our schooling system says, well, okay, we're going to adopt a new system and a new approach will we ever able to address that scalability piece? Um, and then, of course, it comes back to teacher education. So am I going to train as a, a senior school um, English teacher or am I going to train as a teacher, facilitator, um, but happen to have specialist skills in English rather than, you know, the other way around? Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's a, you know, if we, <laughs> we go back to that concept of ecosystems, systems, it's teacher training, it's, it's how we do schooling, it is the way we construct curriculum um, and the way we sort of think about these kind of binary pathways. Those things need to break down um, to a certain degree, but there still needs to be a level of structure. I don't think we can talk necessarily about the scalability piece until those systems, um, you know, are, are in, in sync. There's a level of synergy between them and, you know, schooling, our parents, and our, and our, our sort of pre-tertiary and tertiary um, experiences are aligned. And at the moment, I would say they're not aligned. No, and I think, you know, I want to add to that point around ATAR. And I, I kind of have this, you know, this vision of, you know, when ATAR breaks down, eventually at some point, that system of ATAR and, you know, your, the importance of that ATAR score, it will break down and we'll do away with it. What would that look like now if you weren't working towards an ATAR, but in year 12, or you use marks from year, you know, end of year 10, and then you know, in year 11 and year 12, you're actually taking a range of, say, 40 micro-credentials. And you, know, you might actually think that you're on an ATAR pathway in the old vocabulary, but you want to go to university. So what do you do in year 11 and 12? Actually, I do a micro-credential in, in medicine, in agriculture, in mining, in engineering, in commerce. And you actually do little 20-hour, 30-hour blocks of introductions into a range of 30, 40 different areas. And I think there's real value in that. Again, challenging because you're getting outside the comfort zone of what a traditional teacher looks like over those years. But if you weren't working so hard towards one score to give yourself the best opportunity to get into to university, what would you actually be mm. interested in studying? And if the university is connected to those micro-credentials, like okay, you want to do agriculture, do this agriculture micro-credential in year 11 and 12, and depending on how you go on that, we may offer you a, a place in this. Mm -hmm. But there's a prerequisite to that. Mm -hmm. Not just get an ATAR of 92 across five subjects that have nothing to do with this learning area at all. And for me, I think that, you know, that might be a vision, but how do you enable that? And I think really it has to be some form of 
some digital technology that comes through, which enables these micro-credentials to be taught more broadly. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. I think we're talking about, you know, a learning profile. So what's in your learning profile? What's on your CV, if you like? And it might be that I've taken sort of some tra- traditional curriculum courses, but I've taken a bunch of micro-credentials. I've also done a fair bit of community engagement and vocational connections with, with community. And I've, I've also involved in the local sports club yep. and I'm involved in the arts, etc. It's about a profile. It's about a CV. And we know already universities are taking kids, you know, from non-ATAR pathways and they are looking at the learner profile. They are looking at the CV. How much community service have you done? Um, you know, how are you contributing to, to, to um, you know, your local sports club? What kind of transferable skills have you developed? Critical thinking, creativity, collaboration. It will be around the profile because there'll still need to be a level of evidence to say this is the right path for you. And, and I can't see that necessarily breaking down, but I can see us, us broadening what's acceptable in terms of what's an endpoint of formal education and the way that then enables a, a student to move beyond that. Um, so I, I'm, I think we'll start to see a learning profile like a CV um, that becomes that sort of endpoint and bridge into you know, further careers, further study, whatever it might be. All right, just to wrap things up, Matt, I'm going to ask a question here. What do you think micro-credentials will look like in 10 years' time in kind of year 10, 11, 12 spaces in schools? I would like to think that at that stage, we will start to see a real breadth of experiences that teachers um, will be expert instructors but expert facilitators uh, and that students will have uh, a suite of experiences but they may find their passion. They may find their passion in year 10. And so bit by bit, they can increase their skills in a particular area. So we'll have to ensure depth and breadth, but we'll also have to ensure we've got stackable pathways. And that is, you know, we go from level one to a level two to a level three, perhaps in, in AI or whatever it might be. Um, and so we'll need to create different sort of learning paths for students. So that's kind of what I see. Um, but there's a fair bit to do with, with teachers um, and, and in school systems uh, to get people ready. Uh, and I think what you're saying really there is it's not going to be binary. We all hope that it's not going to be binary and there's two choices. What we'd really love to see is student agency, choice over what they're, what they're studying, self-selecting in, buying in and actually getting after things that they're interested in rather than what we tell them they should be interested in or that they're doing things because they think it's going to get them a high score for ATAR. Yeah. And I think voice and choice uh, is the, the aim of the game um, and we should all be encouraging student agency in our schools. All right, well, I think that's going to bring an end to our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed our little chat on uh, starting out in student agency, a lot of micro-credentials in there and kind of returning back to student agency, I think. Remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show using your favourite podcast app and leave us a review. You can also sign up for our mailing list at edleaders.com.au or follow Ed Leaders Australia on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. Go well.